Let's continue our worship by taking our Bibles and turning to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 32. Genesis, chapter 32. I hope you can turn there with great energy and vigor on this daylight savings time morning when the clocks spring forward and children still wake up at the same time. It's a fun place to be. But you know, in light of this, I mean, we really do have an opportunity, even in weakness, even if you're tired this morning, you realize that your resources are not in the caffeine that you drank or in the energy that you tried to get from your sleep last night. Our resources in whatever endeavor we take on for Christ are from Him. So even the corporate gathering, even the listening of a sermon that That is something for which we need God's help and His grace. So if you feel weak this morning, rely on His strength, and let's see what He has for us in His Word. Now, in this particular passage, it is one of the most mysterious and interesting in all of Genesis. And I think it'd be beneficial for us to read the entire story from start to finish And then I'll go back and explain what we read uh, when I'm done. Genesis 32, we're going to begin there and go all the way to chapter 33, uh, verse 17. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkey, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said... I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, 
When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in your sight, my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord, pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and, and, and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. And he said, what need is there? 
Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. What an interesting passage. I mean, if I were to give the, the sermon a title, which I really never tell you. There is a title, by the way. <laughs> it's always on the podcast. But if I were to announce the title, which I never do, I would title it this, When God Wrestles. And what a fascinating concept. That at the, the turning point of this narrative is this interesting interchange between Jacob, mere man, and someone who is ultimately identified with God. And so the, the, the subject itself is interesting. But to appreciate the power and the significance of what we have in this text, one needs to reconcile two disparate realities. There's two things you need to bring together to make this text work for you. The first is personal, the second is textual. Personally, you should be able to read this text and identify with Jacob's struggle. If you're following the story of Jacob closely, as we've been looking at him over the last few weeks, here's a guy who has not had an easy life by any means. And as we reflect upon our own lives, I know very few people in this room who would actually go about saying, yes, my life has rather been a downhill walk. It's normally pretty simple. I mean, even when somebody asks us, how are you doing? Beyond the obligatory, I'm okay, I never really meet anyone. Well, I don't normally meet anyone who says, fantastic. I mean, we all know that we can't tell everybody how we really feel. <laughs> but we never hear anybody that actually is just like, man, you know what? Life couldn't be better. In fact, if somebody ever does that, we think they're a little strange. Because life is not that way. I, I mentioned downhill versus uphill because I was in Los Angeles this week for some meetings and defending my doctoral stuff, which I passed, by the way. But I went for a run, and I noticed that a run in Los Angeles is way different than a run in Florida. <laughs> There's actually inclines. And they're visually deceptive because you think, oh, it's just a little bit of a grade on the hill, you know. But you just feel it. You just, it's like, what, it, what is wrong with my legs? It's, they don't, they're not made for this. You know, sometimes it's, it's like life is just on an uphill gradient. It's like we think it, it doesn't look that bad, but why is it so stinking hard? I mean, everything feels like a struggle. I mean, just analyze any particular area in your life, whether it be your finances, your relationships with your family, your spiritual walk. I mean, I don't know anyone who says, you know what, I'm just firing on all cylinders. It's push, pull, struggle, fight, battle. I mean, those are the kind of verbs that we would use to describe our existence in those areas. Every once in a while, things are going okay, but like by and large, the typical flow is some type of fight, some type of struggle. And so to identify first with this text, you need to identify with Jacob's struggle. He is a struggler. He is one who has suffered immensely like he is one who even though he has enjoyed the promise and the blessing of God still finds himself in the most difficult of situations 
partly because of his own doing. So there's a personal aspect that you need to connect, but there's also a textual aspect. Did you know that as the original audience, the original Jews, would would read this passage, they actually read it identifying with Jacob as their namesake. It is here in this passage that his name will be called Israel. And so when they see him, they uniquely identify with him above all the patriarchs. I mean, like, he's their kind of guy. They can resonate with him because he is somebody who was promised from the very womb that he would be successful. I mean, God said that he would prevail over his older brother and that the blessing would pass through him. And even though he enjoyed this divine promise, he still found himself in the stickiest of situations, normally at his own behest. And so did the nation of Israel over and over again. God had promised them ultimate victory. They would be able to, like, ride on the clouds, if you will, and they would be able to enjoy his blessing. They would be able to dominate the nations. And yet somehow, some way, they always figured out how to mess it up. And so Jacob is somebody that they can identify with. They, they see in him their own struggle against the nations. That is how they read this text. And so whatever happens to Jacob is something that they feel has uniquely happened to them. That They read it with such identification. And so for Jacob here to experience this, this odd trial, this, this wrestling with God, to, to experience threat and then to experience some form of victory in the end, they're uniquely interested in this account. And I would say that any of us in the room this morning who can identify with such struggle, should be reading this with keen interest. We should be reading this looking to understand how we could advance in our own struggle. Like, what is the way forward? I mean, in in contrast to the never-ending, ever-draining life of personal planning and effort, wouldn't you like to know how your life is supposed to go? That's what this text is answering. And so you'll listen carefully for these lessons from when God wrestled. Now, there's three major scenes here. Uh, We notice this, uh, I've told you many times before, in in Hebrew narratives, you've got a plot line, and it it normally climaxes right in the middle. So things start getting going, and then the main turning point is right in the middle of the text. And the crazy thing is, That though in American stories, like, everything resolves very quickly, you'll notice here that the narrator will actually spend a lot of time actually showing the outcome of the the plot, how the, the crisis was resolved. And so we have then three pretty parallel, like, movements in this text. The, The first is Jacob's scheming. The second is his striving. The third is his succeeding. Scheming, striving, succeeding. In chapter 32, verses 1 to 21 that we've already read, uh, did you notice how Jacob in this opening scene starts off the story decidedly having to choose between his own ways and God's ways? The narrator will bounce back and forth showing us that Jacob is a kind of guy who is always pushed for his own way, but he's open to God's way. 
I mean, his whole life has been about him making stuff work. He is the, the arch schemer. He is the guy who plans and manipulates his way through all of life. I mean, it starts off as he like, cuts that deal with his brother and his moment of desperation to get his birthright. And then we see the big elaborate scheme that he did to actually like, win the blessing by actually dressing up to be his brother so that his father would accidentally bless him instead. And then we see him with Laban, and he still figures out a way to work Laban to a point where he could take advantage of all Laban has to offer him. I mean, this guy is a mover and a shaker. He knows how to get things done. And because of that, he always is relying on his own resources. And here in these few verses, you're going to see some options presented to Jacob. There's going to be, and I'll do this visually for a moment, there's going to be the divine way of getting it done over here. And then there's going to be the human way of getting things done. Uh, the divine way is going to be one of divine dependence. The, the human way is one I would label human resourcefulness. It starts off with the divine. In the first two verses, there's this rather odd incident where Jacob is immediately leaving the presence of Laban, and he runs into, and this is so strange, a, a camp, a company of angels. And, and you would naturally wonder, what is this about? What is going on here? But you remember that when Jacob left the promised land, what did he run into? A dream in which angels were descending from heaven and going from earth to heaven? These angels were a symbol of God's accompanying presence. Uh, friends, despite what you have seen in Hallmark cards, uh, angels in the Bible aren't cute, pudgy, fat, innocent-looking little beings that float around. They are God's messengers, His ambassadors. In fact, it would probably be better for you to understand them as His warriors. I mean, the first picture that we ever saw of an angel in Genesis came from the one that bore a flaming sword at the entrance of the garden. That's not a chubby kid with some arrows. This is a warrior. This is someone who accomplishes God's purposes. Actually, even like the, the Hebrew word for like a company of angels is often the same things that people use to associate with like a battle troop. And so here, like he sees like an army camp of angels. Just as the angels reminded him of God's presence on the way out, so also as he's making his way back in, God gives him this, this extra revelation so that he, have, he has insight into the spiritual world, and he sees that right alongside his camp, his human camp, is a divine camp ready and willing to fight the battle for him. And he sees it, and that's why he calls it Mahane. It just literally means, you can see the little translational note in your Bible, two camps. Jacob knows that God is with him. He sees it. He identifies it. And so, I mean, on this divine side of reliance, like he could move forward down this path and just trust as he meets this inevitable obstacle of his brother who hates his guts and wants to see him dead, that he will prevail. But even though Jacob knows this, guess what else he also entertains? His human resourcefulness. He gets the vision of the angels. He knows that they're with him. And what does he immediately do? He cooks up a plan. 
And the plan, actually, I mean, from a human perspective, it makes a lot of sense. If you haven't been with us in the story of Jacob, here's all you need to know. He's conquered pretty much all of his enemies and his obstacles up to this point, except for one, and it is the most threatening, and that is his brother, who he basically stole his inheritance from. And by the way, you need to know about this brother. He's a hunter. He's a man of the outdoors. He knows how to kill things. So Jacob literally flees for his life, only, and the text reveals it, only with his staff. <laughs> and, and like, heads for the hills. He's been gone 20 years, but God told him to go back to the land that he was born in so that he could take possession of it. But there's one thing standing between him and the land, and that is a hostile brother. And so Jacob decides to cook a plan, and his plan is so that he would actually send out an envoy, uh, some messengers of his own. Interesting Hebrew word for angels back in verses 1 and 2, is the same Hebrew word for messengers in verse 3. Like, ultimately, Jacob sees God's plan for him and says, hey, God's got a good plan. I think I'm going to copy that. I want to send my own messengers out, and let's see if I can, like, warm Esau up to me. And so what he decides to do is to send these people and say to them, like, look, I've got a, Jacob's got a big gift, God's blessed him, and he wants to pay you off, basically. But do you notice how the response is, is left? It, it's open-ended. When you look at your Bibles, after the, the, the messengers come, look at verse 6. The messengers return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. <laughs> uh, these aren't just 400 of his buddies. Uh, this is 400 militia strong. I mean, like, we saw that earlier in the book of Genesis, Abraham like kicked butt and took names with 317 men. And here we've got 400 guys with Esau, and they're coming to meet you right now. I'm telling you, this is a threatening position to be in. And in the realm of human resourcefulness, you know what Jacob decides? You know, we just need to cut our losses, and here's what we're going to do. We're just going to split the camps in two. He's going to make two of his own camps. Because if he attacks the one, maybe the other half can escape. Friends, that's a bad place to be in. Uh, when you're down to like losing 50% of everything that you own, like that's your best option, uh, he's desperate. And so that's exactly what he does. And this is the way human resourcefulness works, by the way. When, when you can only see your way of doing things, your options are fairly limited. But Jacob also then considers, again, the divine dependence. Let's come back over to this side for a moment. Because immediately the text is going to flip-flop from Jacob's human resourcefulness to divine dependence. And what you see in the next part is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the book of Genesis. I mean, he's a conflicted man. He doesn't know the way forward. And friends, I would say this is most of us. We try to do things our own way, and then when we realize that there's no other way, then we try God's way. <laughs> there have been some mighty fine prayers prayed from the foxhole. And that's exactly what Jacob prays here. 
in his moment of duress, notice how he calls out to God of Abraham, God of Isaac. I mean, he humbles himself and he says, I know I'm not worthy for you to come and work. And he calls on God's promise and says, look, you promised that you would protect me. You promised that you would bless me. You promised that things would turn out good to me. I mean, for those of you who are in the praying scripture class, this is how you pray scripture. Jacob has taken the promise of God and he is like giving it back to him. That is exactly how prayer works. And so Jacob here in this moment, I mean, you're, you would be thinking like, oh, he, he knows what it means to depend on the Lord and he's going to go down this, this, this path of divine dependence. But guess what? The text flips again. Only a few verses on Jacob's prayer are followed by a ton of verses on Jacob's plan. It's as if the prayer was never prayed. Like you could take out, literally, you could edit out that prayer and the narrative would continue to make sense because Jacob operates as if he had never prayed in the first place. Do you notice in your Bible, just look at how much ink is taken up on the page between verses 13 and 20. Compare that to what you see in verses 9 through 12. You know what 13 through 20 is? It is Jacob's plan of human resourcefulness. He's thinking, I've got stuff. This guy's angry at me, and I am going to present this in an expensive and elaborate way, and I'm going to buy them all. So it's expensive, by the way. It, it, like, we hear animals, and immediately our mind checks out, except for our echo friends here who know what animals are worth. But the rest of us are just like, oh, a dog and pony show. How he Friends, this is cash in the bank. This is money. You notice that he actually gives the ideal ratio of male to female livestock so that Jacob can have a maximum profit. I mean, like he splits it up so that there's a good number of females and a few males, and he gives them goats, and he gives them the, the lambs, and he gives them camels with their calves. I mean, like this is an extraordinary thing. It's hundreds of animals. I, I mean, like they would like overflow in this building. And he divides them up into three different groups. And listen, it's not only expensive, but it's elaborate. It's like, he's like planning a circus here. I mean, do you notice that he separates them into three different groups because he wants to like, like waves on the ocean to, like, to, to break down the sandcastle of his brother's hard heart. Like he's hoping that with the first wave, it'll loosen things up. Hey, my brother's behind you and there's more to come. And then with the second wave, the same thing. My brother's behind, you know, your brother's coming and, and he wants to. And then by the third one, Jacob's thinking like, okay, for sure, this is going to work. This is, this is the plan. And what I want you to notice that's so interesting about Jacob's plan is the language that he uses to talk about his brother. In this plan, the messengers are required to say to Esau, Jacob, your servant, is addressing my Lord Esau. My Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. My Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. You want to know what's interesting? In Hebrew, Jacob uses the exact same language to talk to God in his prayer. Just a few verses earlier, Jacob is saying, you are my Lord and I am your servant. 
then he starts getting fearful again, and he depends on his human resourcefulness. And you know what he says? Instead of looking up, he looks out and says, You are my Lord, and I am your servant. Such is how the fear of man works. People in our lives, when we face obstacles, can begin to take the place of even God. They take on divine importance, and we think we have to please them. And so Jacob debates. Human resourcefulness, divine dependence, on which one will he land? Well, it seems that at the end of verse 21, Jacob has made his choice. It says, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. That's where he last leaves it, on the human side of things. This is what makes the most sense for him. He once again has acted as if it all depends on him, even though he had some divine options at his disposal, showing that he ultimately believes that victory and success are primarily a matter of human scheming. But before we move on, let's personalize this for a moment. And what about you? When your back is against the wall and certain destruction or defeat or imminent, on what or on whom do you ultimately rely? I know that every one of you in this room know that you have divine options at your disposal. And I'm not doubting one second that any of you, like, don't pray when you face an obstacle. But here's the question, friends. On what are you ultimately relying? Just think back to your last crisis. You know, that thing that kept you up at night, the, the thing that like kept you from eating the way that you wanted to. I mean, when the bad news broke, what was your first response? Uh, as the pain persisted, how did you cope? As the problem deepened, how did you push forward? I mean, regarding that past conundrum or the current one, I want you to fill in the blank here. If I don't have blank, I'm not going to make it. If I can't do blank, I'm going down. Most of the time, we fill in the blanks with the stuff that we ourselves can control, see, or manipulate. We fill in the blanks with those horizontal things that we can see and taste and touch and feel and hear. And very rarely is it, lest God intervenes, I'm cooked. Lest Prayer is answered, I'm going down. Lest God's word is true, there's no way. The struggle is real, friends. Divine dependence, human resourcefulness, we can identify with Jacob. We're so torn. But the story you need to know not only depicts Jacob's scheming, it also depicts his striving. Striving. He, he fights on top of the struggle in, in which Jacob engages with Esau. He will also enter into a struggle with an additional assailant who at the very first to us remains unknown. And here I want to uh, encourage you to do something. I need you to do a mental exercise. I want you to, to look at this passage as if you've never heard it before. Because the, the author, the inspired author, 
doesn't actually tell you or disclose the identity of the individual. It's like if you were reading this or you were watching this movie for the first time, you don't know who this guy is. He intentionally uses the very generic Hebrew word, the man, the man. And it's only at the end that you find out it was God. So don't read ahead into this. Let's just kind of take it as it comes for a moment. And that's the only way, by the way, you're going to be able to understand what could be extremely confusing. First of all, get the setting. You look at verses 22 to 23. Jacob is contemplating this imminent showdown. He thinks that his life is literally on the line. And so he pushes his family across the Jabbok, this this little ford, this, this little stream, And he gets them all across, and he makes sure everyone's there safely, and he's even traveling at night. He's that concerned. He's thinking, maybe I can escape him. And so as he gets them across, I can only imagine, like, how this happens. I think we've all been in these moments where we say, you know, I need a second. (laughs) You guys go ahead. You've made it across. I need a second. And it says that he stands on the other side of the river alone in the dark. And suddenly, Like, out of nowhere, he's attacked. He's attacked by another individual. And you need to remember something about Jacob. He is no wuss. This is a strong man. I mean, he was the guy that moved the rock over the well that took three other shepherds to move. He was the guy who had, like, gotten up early and stayed up late for years on end taking care of a flock. He's no wimp. And he is battling for his life with this unknown assailant who is literally trying to pin him to the ground. I mean, the the Hebrew word for wrestle is exactly what you think it means. He is in a contest for his life, and this is a grueling attack. And what happens is so interesting because who knows how long this thing lasts. We know that at least it's hours because he's waiting till sunbreak for this ultimate man which till sunbreak to try to get away from the fight. But have you ever wrestled? I mean, you, think about that. Uh, women, I don't, I don't think you wrestle that much. But men, <laughs> you know what it's like to wrestle? Like, even with your kids? I mean, I'm like at like 10 minutes, and I'm like, man, I'm out. <laughs> and they're like this big. Uh, can, can you imagine doing this all night long again? Jacob's a strong man, but he realizes that whoever this guy is that's attacked him, has some superior strength of his own. But what happens is so fascinating is that the man is like the dad wrestling with his kids. You know, like, he's totally accommodating himself to Jacob's strength. He doesn't just totally obliterate him. He engages with him until he finds it's time for him to leave because the sun's going to come up, and I'll explain that in a moment. But what I want you to notice is that when the guy decides he wants to end this match, he ends it. He has some type of supernatural resources Jacob can discern because here's what happens. After wrestling all night long, the man merely touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh. I mean, oh, by the way, interesting. You ever had sciatica? (laughs) That's the Hebrew word here. Like it's that, that spot that feels like it's on the inside of you where the hip connects. I mean, like he just touches and it dislocates his leg. Like what kind of power is that? Who can do that? And so now Jacob can't fight. All he can do is, like, just hold on. <laughs> Jacob realizes that whoever this guy is has superior resources to him, and he wants access to those resources. It is something superhuman. It is something supernatural. Jacob has been trying to engage in this fight with all of his human resources. 
But now he's realizing that there may be something divine taking place here, and he is going to need to depend. And so he clings to such a degree that the man who is yet to be identified says, you need to let me go because it's about to be daybreak. Now, we all know from reading the Old Testament carefully that no one could ever see God in his fullness and live. And so it is a mercy from Almighty God who will ultimately be revealed here in this human form that he tries to leave Jacob. And Jacob knows, he says, look, I mean, realizing that this person may be divine, he is willing even to die, to hold on to him till daybreak, to actually see his face Lest this guy bless him. He wants what this man has. He knows that his resources aren't enough. He needs what this guy has. And so Jacob so successfully depends upon this man that he agrees to bless him. Now what is the blessing? It happens in an interesting way. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We said that Blessing in our own day is like a will or a wish. You know, it's like somebody sneezes and we say, God bless you. Or we say the blessing before the meal and it, it's, it's rather like, it seems trivial to us. We don't think that anything life-changing happens. I mean, nobody chokes on their food because they didn't say the blessing before. But a blessing in the Old Testament was like the the will of God being spoken out, some people were given this capacity to say things to such a degree that they would actually happen. It was an amazing power. Jacob is asking for a blessing. So how does the man give the blessing? He doesn't speak it in the traditional way. He speaks it in a way that he makes Jacob confess his tendency to depend in the sphere of human resourcefulness. He says, what is your name? You remember what Jacob's name means? It means heel heel grabber. (laughs) It means like the guy who is behind or who's on the ground already, who's always struggling to get ahead of someone else. Jacob's name means like man of human resources. Like he's the guy who is always trying to get things done through his own conniving and manipulating. And this man says, say your name. Admit who you are. Admit that you are the kind of person who regularly and persistently depends upon your own resources. And receive a new name. The new name is Israel. You look in the textual note in your Bible, and it means one of two things. Either God fights or the one who fights with God. More than likely, it means God fights. And here, the narrator is having us understand that that Jacob is now going to be one who understands that he's not the one who struggles and fights anymore. God is the one who must fight for him. That's how the struggle takes place. We don't worry about our horizontal struggles with man. We worry about this one, the relationship with God. And when we are holding on to him, he is fighting our battles. God fights. That is exactly what he needs to know. And this is how he will be blessed in the future. As he depends on the divine resources, God will fight his battles. And that is how he will win. You know, this is underscored by the fact that the man 
with his divine resources, touches Jacob's thigh, dislocating his leg from his hip, keeping him from being able to actually walk normally ever again. It wasn't just like a one-off, a bruise that heals. This is something that would affect Jacob for the rest of his life. And you know what? God in his mercy maims Jacob's human resources. He keeps him from being able to depend on his own strength. And when you look carefully at the literature here, it's beautiful. This is the best thing that could have ever happened to him. Look, Look at your Bible. Specifically, at verse 31. Notice that the setting was all dark and mysterious. Now look at verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. (laughs) The sun rises, and it's supposed to be a beautiful new morning, and you know what's so great about it? Jacob can't operate the way he used to anymore. He can't depend on his own resources anymore. Now here he is, limping along. One author said it this way, it is by the grace of God that those who rejoice in his resources dance with a limp. That is our dance, friends. It is an acknowledgement that we cannot get it done with what we have within ourselves. And so Jacob experiences this success. I mean, even to the degree that the, the Jews from that point forward would remember the significance of his dependence upon God. In verse 32, it says, Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip of the socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. It would even affect their dietary practices. They, were, they would so remember this moment that they would not even eat the meat at the end of the leg bone. Because <laughs> it was important. The maiming here was no mess-up. It was a mercy. C.S. Lewis creatively recaptures the significance of this scene in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, this lesser-known sequel to the Chronicles of Narnia series at one point tells the story of this little boy named Eustace who begins to act, I'll use the British word here, very naughty. Um, In fact, I mean, as you read it, he's... I'll use the American term, he's a jerk. He's just, he's a striver, he's a schemer, he's selfish, he's arrogant. He's downright beastly, as he's perpetually plotting for his own way. But what's interesting about the story is that this beastly behavior would come back to bite him. Because on one of the islands that the crew lands on, Eustace finds a dragon's lair and is very greedy for the treasure, and so he puts on this gold bracelet and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he's been turned into a dragon. Lewis writes, Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. The magic of the land had determined that if he was going to act like a dragon, he would actually become one. And lamenting his condition, Eustace tries to remedy what he had become. He takes his sharp claws and he tries to remove the dragon scales from his body. But he found that no matter how many layers of dragon skins he managed to peel off himself, he was still a dragon. His only hope was Aslan, the lion. 
Discerning the dilemma, he offers to remove the dragon's scales and again make him a pure and innocent little boy. And in desperation, Eustace agrees and he allows the lion to take his sharp claws and immediately and painfully begin to cut little Eustace free from the beastly confines that had overtaken him. And when he reports on the incident later, here are Eustace's words. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And there I was, eventually as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And he peeled the beastly stuff right off. After Aslan's painful operation, Eustace once again became a pure and gentle little boy. I like the way that Lewis notes this scene passing. He says, It would be nice and fairly neatly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There are still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Friends, such is the work of Christ on the human heart. In him, the cure has begun. You know what your greatest problem is? Your greatest asset. What you think is so good about you is actually the biggest problem that you have. The Bible calls it self-righteousness. This tendency that is born within us all to look and say, I'm not that bad, and my way really isn't like too corrupt, too crooked. I mean, if I just let this happen, I mean, we operate in this sphere. And you know what Christ came to save you from? A sinfully dominated self. That's why Jesus would say to anyone who would follow him, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Jesus rescues you from yourself. Friends, like this is what we all must at some time like come to understand. Like the way forward, the struggle that we experience is not a matter of human resources, it is a matter of divine dependence. And it begins at conversion. It begins at that moment in which we finally acknowledge that we cannot, in and of ourselves, be right with God, but must have Him make us right. And that's why Jesus came. We sang of the wondrous mystery of Christ coming. Everybody knows that Jesus came. They know that He lived. They know that He died. They know that He was buried. They know that He rose again. But you know why He did all that? He was entering into humanity. What Adam messed up, He would reverse and fix. The life that you couldn't live... He would live. And the penalty that you couldn't pay apart from eternity in hell, He would suffer in that time on the cross and through His burial. Rising again, showing that any who believe in Him can experience the eternal life that only He offers. Divine dependence, human resourcefulness. You have one of two options, dear friend, when it comes to your greatest struggle, and that is where you will spend eternity. With whom, I mean, forget Esau for a moment, with whom's the face with whom you need to find favor. It is only through the resources that he provides. And when that happens, you are now enabled to live a life of divine dependence. 
Having trusted him for the most important thing, now you could trust him for the lesser things. So, friend, today, if you're here and you've yet to turn from yourself and trust in Christ, like, this is paramount. That is first. Jesus would save you. That he would be saving you (laughs) through the continued obstacles and challenges and difficulties that you endure. It is a life of divine dependence, not just an instance of it. So, Justin, I get it, I get it. What does, though, practically speaking, what does such divine dependence look like? Well, there's this, um, it's interesting. I I think that uh, there'd be a few actions that would take place in the heart of one who is regularly depending upon Christ. The first is that of confession. Just as Jacob here was forced to confess his identity as a heel grabber and to receive a new name, Israel. I mean, think about that. A name change, that affects everyone you talk to. (laughs) You have to keep correcting them. Like, no, no, my name's not Jacob anymore. It's actually Israel. I'm not a heel grabber anymore. I'm actually one who depends on God to fight my battles. Like, God gave him a new name. Like, he has to confess this. Like, this isn't just a private experience between him and God. Like, this would become public knowledge as evidenced by the fact that you have a whole country of people who wouldn't eat the end of the leg bone. Confession. Admit your sin. The Bible says it this way, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Look, look, I get that you think that your way of handling life is good. You wouldn't be doing it if you didn't think that. But listen, friends, the end thereof are the ways of death. You know how you find mercy in God's eyes? You just admit that your way stinks. Like you actually open up and say, I have sinned. I have rebelled against your plan. I am doing things my own way. And you know what happens when you confess before God? He gives mercy. Proverbs, I mean, even the Old Testament says it. It says, whoever covers his sin will not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh his sin shall find mercy. Or 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. I mean, it's very clear in that passage. Like, if you say that you haven't sinned, you're a liar. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it look like to live the way of divine dependence? It first includes some confession, friends. Like, we're just owning our tendency. And I would say that it'd probably be helpful for you. I'm not going to require it. I'll only suggest it'd probably be helpful for you to talk to some other brothers and sisters in Christ that you're close to about the way in which you are most likely to depend on yourself. Say, friends, I am struggling. I regularly try to depend on X, Y, and Z instead of Jesus. I need your help, especially when you know I'm in times of trial, so that they can pray with you. Just be open about it. Stop trying to protect yourself. The second is not just confession, but courage. Friend, I would encourage you in your desperate moment to cry out to God to recover you at all costs. There is an initial experience of conversion, but there are these ongoing aftershocks in which we realize that there are these idols in our heart that we look to for salvation instead of Jesus alone. And we need the courage to say, God, whatever it takes, remove this from me. Maim me if necessary. 
It may be your physical strength. It may be your financial resources. It may be a relationship, but you should be willing to say before God Almighty, hurt whatever you need to that I may walk with a limp in your grace. That takes some courage, friends. There's this old hymn. We don't sing it here. I I would love to, but it's seven verses long, and we're just not brave enough to do it. But it's John Newton, the former slave trader turned pastor. I'd encourage you to look up the words to this as a meditation for your own devotional time this week. The title of it is, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. You can't skip any verses. It's seven verses of a story in which Newton gives an account of his prayer to God for growth. And as he's explaining this prayer, he says, I I, I was praying that that God would in some favorable hour like just shine the sun down upon me and just naturally make me more like Christ. And, And then what happens is, like he'll tell the story. God gives him this most horrific trial to the point that he thinks he's going to die. And it's there that the, the evils of his heart are exposed. But now, though, he has the capacity to realize how much he needs Christ. And in the end, the growth came through all the pain that God had given him. Friends, that's just how it works. I wish so badly that I could get in shape by eating Cheetos and watching Netflix. But it just doesn't happen that way, does it? The divine economy is no different. You really want to grow, you want to get out of this perpetual reliance upon self. You need the courage to pray, Lord, do whatever it takes. Maim me if necessary. So it takes confession. It takes courage. But then beyond that, it just takes raw clinging. Jacob not only embraced his insufficiency, but he embraced God's all-sufficiency. See, friends, it's one thing for you to realize that you're a screw-up. It's something else to realize that he satisfies. You you have to be able to actively depend upon him. Yes, you forsake those inferior idols and your substitute saviors. That's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is actually relying upon the real thing. Jacob's situation, this merely required walking with a lamp, but in our own expressions of dependence, it looks a little different. I seriously doubt that any of you are actually physically going to walk differently as a result of depending on the Lord. But guess what? As we put together the rest of our New Testament, we understand that there are some visible expressions Evidences, if you will, of people who are depending upon him. Uh, uh, The Puritans called it this, the means of grace. The means of grace. There are these uh, exercises, these expressions of dependence upon God for the Christian that are like his walking staff, if you will. I'll just give you three. Prayer, the Word, and the church. How do I know if I'm depending on God, if I'm clinging to Him as opposed to my own resources? Well, you take advantage of the resources that He has offered you. What are those? Well, the first is prayer. 
Like talking to God is an expression of dependence upon Him. You, you take somebody that doesn't pray much. This is what I was doing in the prayer of confession earlier. You take someone that doesn't pray much, they're showing that they don't need God. And yet God has given you that as a means of holding on to His grace. The same thing as the Word. Some of you legalistically read your Bible and like move on with the day. And you just hate it. But you don't see that in this is life. Like, I need that truth to refresh my mind this day. It is an expression of dependence. That's why I don't even like the word devotions, because it makes it sound like I'm the one that's devoted. Let's call them dependences. I didn't do my dependence this morning. I, I didn't actually, like, depend on God actively in His Word. His Word is a means of His grace. We're showing that we're relying on Him. We don't need the news. We don't need Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity to inform our lives. We need Jesus to inform our lives. We look to the Word to make sense of the world that we are stepping into this week. And then the church. What you're doing here today is a means of grace. And not just, by the way, the walking through the back door. There is nothing special, like uniquely spiritual about the space. It's space. It's a building. But what does take place here are the people of God gathering. And yes, we may not be able to shake hands without breaking the elders' rules but we still need that fellowship, that interaction, that contact with one another. The church. So many people think, oh, I've got this thing covered. I don't need church. I've got my Bible and I've got prayer. No, Jesus said you need church. He says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And look, I'm not beating up anybody that's here. You're here today. But do you feel like you need this? Do you need pastors? Do you need the people of God? It's a means of grace. But can I give one caveat? Too many times we take the means of grace and we act as if those things are grace themselves. The means of grace, friends, are only a means of relying upon God's power. There's this little incident that takes place in my home on a regular basis, and it's fun. The kids will get a laundry basket. We have a tile floor, and one of them will step in the basket, and they take their school belts, and the person will hold on to one end of the belt, and the other person is pulling the kids with the other end of the belt, and they do this little, like, kind of like, I don't know, just water skiing event, like, through the house with the, it's totally cool to me, because we don't have wood floors, that's the beauty of the tile. Now, what you need to understand is that like, the kid in the basket, like, can't do anything on his own. Like, he is, he's dead in the water or dead on the tile. <laughs> he's, he's just not going anywhere. But it is the belt that connects him to the power of the one who is pulling him. Even the kid in the basket with the belt is worthless. It's just a belt. But when connected to the stronger one on the outside of the basket, now it's the means by which they can get going. Friends, the means of grace without God himself is nothing but the belt. You're just sitting there. It's not about the prayer. It's not about the Bible. It's not about the church. It's about the God that is over and above all those things. And these are just the means by which we cling 
This is what we hold on to. These are the expressions of allegiance to him. And so how would we come to this place? Conversion. Courage. Confession. And clinging. And how does that work out? How does that work out for Jacob? How could we see things working out for us? I don't even have to spend much time on it, but when you read verses 33, 1 through 17, what was Jacob's greatest obstacle now becomes his greatest human ally. And it had jack squat to do with Jacob's little plan. It's funny that even Esau will say, what in the world were you sending all this stuff for? Like, this is ridiculous. I mean, instead of like hurting Jacob, what does he do? He runs to him. He clings to him. He kisses him. He embraces him. He minimizes Jacob's plan. And then on two separate occasions, he's going to say to Jacob, like, let me help you. Let me escort you. Here, you take my resources and let me help you into the promised land. Like, that had nothing to do with this plan. It had everything to do with what God was doing. And you know, friends, that when those Israelites would read that story and they would read into it their own obstacle, they would remember, man, this way stinks. I am going to depend on the Lord alone. He can arrange a superior outcome. And that is good news for you. I can't guarantee that everything's going to work out in your life the way that you want it to, but I promise the superior plan will prevail when you depend upon the divine. That is what this text is about. When God wrestles, we win. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, save us from ourself. We just have too much pride, too much appreciation for our own efforts. And we need you to do whatever it takes to humble us as a church and as individuals within it. For our outcome is certain loss, or yours is certain victory. It is so simple. So give us hearts that will trust you no matter how painful it may first seem to us. And we're counting on provide victory, not through us, but in Christ. And it is in his name alone that we pray. Amen.